0: Now that he had stabilized SpaceX, it was time for Musk to focus his attention back on Tesla. So Tesla was in that cash crunch. They were trying to be really the first company in the last century, American car company in the last century to mass produce vehicles and revitalize a new market, the electric vehicle market. So Musk, he had to really raise cash at the last minute to save the company from their production issues. And he was able to work his magic yet again, raising $20 million from their investing investors to give them this lifeline. That lifeline took them to 2009, and it was really in 2009 when he was able to secure some of the future of Tesla. In 2009, they built this custom prototype car For Daimler. And when Daimler saw how impressive this prototype is, they decided to invest $50 million into Tesla. So Tesla benefited in the span of a year as they were suffering from cash flow issues. They benefited from receiving another $70 million in equity infusions. And soon after that, they were able to get a large loan from the Department of Energy. This was a $465 million loan. It actually was not as favorable as some people think. I think there's this perception out there that Tesla got this free handout from the government, a practically half a billion dollar handout by the government. That wasn't actually the case. This was the type of loan where Tesla had to spend money on expenses, and then they would actually get reimburse, send invoices and get reimbursed on their expenses. And it was interest bearing. So they did end up paying $12 million in interest to the government. So it wasn't just some free handout, but it certainly helped Tesla get on track and really allowed them that stability to tackle their new mass market vehicle. What they knew would be the Model S. With some of this financial security in place, Musk set out to form a great team. He made a critical hire by bringing on Franz von Holzhausen, who would lead the design of the car. And one of the most important things that they started contemplating was how could their car, the elements in their car, differentiate from all the existing cars out there. Obviously, this is an electric car, so it's battery supported, but more importantly, he was starting to think, how could the integration of hardware and software differentiate our car? And one of the biggest key elements during this time was that Musk realized he wants these Teslas to be software-dominated cars. He wants to dominate the market, both the EV market and the entire auto industry, With their software capabilities. Most importantly, regarding the car as a piece of software rather than just hardware allowed it to be continuously upgraded. New features could be delivered over the air. We were amazed at how we could add tons of functionality over the years, including more acceleration, Musk says. It allowed the car to get better. Than when you originally bought it. So I'm starting to see another really big key trait of Elon Musk unveil itself at this time. And it is that Elon Musk is always going to double down. We saw that in this bleak, tough time of 2008, both of his core companies, Tesla and SpaceX, were having cash flow issues, just barely surviving. Tesla, production issues with the Roadster, SpaceX, three failed launches for their Falcon One, and both of them, at the very last minute, they were able to raise money, get this cash infusion, and ensure a little bit of financial stability. They were able to find some success with their fourth Falcon launch and build a Roadster that could actually go through production. So he had ensured this stability and this safety for both of his companies. Well, once he was on the other side, it wasn't like he was happy just sitting with what he already has. He didn't tell his team, let's just continue to crank out Roadsters or let's just continue to launch Falcon 1 rockets. He sees that he's successful. He has built up some stability and now he is going to double down. He is addicted to risk. He's ready to take the next risk, take on the bigger challenge of the Model S. Now he says, I want to produce a mass market car, a market car that differentiates itself on software. He goes out and tries to build the Falcon 9. The Falcon 9 has nine times the engines as the Falcon 1. So this is an increasingly harder problem for Musk in the SpaceX team to solve. I just thought this was another really core lesson, a key trait of Elon Musk. He will always double down. He is not going to settle for complacency. He is not happy sitting in the same place. Whenever he gets a success, he will reinvest it, reach for the next risky innovation, and again, always double down. Musk saved money by questioning requirements. When he asked his team why it would cost $2 million to build a pair of cranes to lift the Falcon 9, he was shown all the safety regulations imposed by the Air Force. Most were obsolete, and Modell was able to convince the military to revise them. The cranes ended up costing 300,000. Look at that reduction. The latches used by NASA in the space station cost $1,500 each. A SpaceX engineer was able to modify a latch used in a bathroom stall and create a locking mechanism that cost $30. From 1500 to $30, from $2 million to 300000 when Mosdell worked for Lockheed and Boeing, he rebuilt a launch pad complex at the Cape for the Delta IV rocket. The similar one he built for the Falcon 9 cost one-tenth as much, 90% less. SpaceX was not only privatizing space, it was upending its cost structure. We are seeing Paul Graham's wisdom in action. Be like a cockroach, hard to kill. These lean, cost conscious business models are ones that could survive the long periods. And now all of these key traits of Musk are coming together, questioning the assumptions, pushing back against the Air Force, getting huge reductions in the costs, 2 million to 300,000, caring About being the lowest cost reusable rocket provider and doubling down on the Falcon 9 for them to finally launch and see the Falcon 9 reach orbit. Musk felt like all of his risk taking was starting to really pay off. Musk's chance to prove that he was not a little nuts, or at least that he was also dependable, came two months later in June 2010, when the Falcon 9 attempted its first unmanned test voyage into orbit. The Falcon 1 had failed three times before being successful, and this rocket was far bigger and more complex. Well, with all of his key traits firing on all cylinders, his team very much bought in, they were able to successfully launch their Falcon 9 rocket, what's considered a 9 to 10 times more powerful rocket, on the very first launch, they were able to see it go into orbit and then return back to earth safely. This was something that no other private company had ever done. Musk's multiplanetary vision was one step closer to fruition. Between 2000 and 2010, the U.S. lost one-third of its manufacturing jobs. By sending their factories abroad, American companies saved labor costs, but they lost the daily feel for the ways to improve their products. Musk bucked this trend, largely because he wanted to have tight control of the manufacturing process. He believed that designing the factory to build a car, the machine that builds the machine, was as important as designing the car itself. Tesla's design-manufacturing feedback loop gave it a competitive advantage, allowing it to innovate on a daily basis. So Musk bucked against conventional wisdom in the way that he chose to manufacture His Teslas as well. Many of the other companies were going towards the globalization trend, outsourcing or pushing their manufacturing abroad. Whereas Musk, he saw that it could truly be a competitive advantage if I have this vertical integration and I have a tightly knit manufacturing process in the US. So to that end, he would place the engineers right next to the factory floor, the people who were designing these Tesla products, he would place them right next to the factory floor so they could see any issues that came up during the manufacturing process. And the second they see an issue slow down their manufacturing process, well, the engineers are right there to solve them. This was a competitive advantage for Tesla throughout the early days and even served as a competitive advantage at times during COVID, when many of the other factories abroad may have been shut down or simply weren't getting their parts. Tesla had chosen for this full tight control option, vertical integration and controlling the machine that builds the machine. Now, it was in this 2010 period that they bought a Fremont factory To really focus on Model S production, and they went public. They were the hot IPO of the year. They raised $266 million in cash, and now they were full steam ahead on producing the Model S. One of Musk's favorite words and concepts was hardcore. He used it to describe the workplace culture he wanted when he founded Zip2 and he would use it almost 30 years later when he upended the nurturing culture at Twitter. As the Model S production line ramped up, he spelled out his creed in a quintessential email to employees titled, Ultra Hardcore. It read, Please prepare yourself for a level of intensity that is greater than almost anything most of you have experienced before. Revolutionizing industries is not for the faint of heart. So Musk attracted the type of people who, like him, were on a mission. These hardcore engineers and factory workers, people who are willing to go to great lengths to accomplish Tesla's EV mission. With this talent in place, and their new deal for a battery gigafactory, Tesla was able to stabilize their new car line the Model S. Now they were starting to reach more of the mass consumer. As the decade progressed, Musk continued to try to fulfill his mission of being the modern-day Henry Ford of EV vehicles with his launch of the new Model 3. The whole point of this company was to make a really great, affordable electric car. And we finally have. So now Tesla was ready to tackle the true mass market. With the Model 3 unveiling in this mid 2010s period, they felt like this would be the car that's affordable to the masses of consumers. This is really where the pain was just getting started. The hard part wasn't building a first prototype of the Model 3. The hard part is producing the Model 3 at record numbers. As Musk would say, welcome to production hell. They must figure out how to mass produce this car economically. They still want it to be affordable and Musk Own solution to this problem is simply to obsess over his work. Walter Isaacson likes to call it surges. Musk will go through these obsessive surges like sleeping on a factory floor or reeling into all of his employees until they accomplish the impossible task. In the impossible task for the Model 3, the goal that he set was producing 5,000 Model 3s per week. Reaching 5,000 cars per week would be a huge challenge. By the end of 2017, Tesla was making cars at only half that rate. Musk decided he had to move himself, literally, to the factory floors and lead an all-in surge. It was a tactic, personally surging into the breach 24-7 with an all-hands-on-deck cadre of fellow fanatics that came to define the maniacal intensity that he demanded at his companies. Something we see again and again from Elon Musk is that he doesn't ask you to do something. That he's not willing to do himself. He is asking a great task of all his employees work to insane hours to get to this production goal, 5,000 cars per week. But Musk, he is setting the example for his troops by literally sleeping on the factory floor. He is showing them that he's willing to put in the work if they are as well. Step one. Should be to question the requirements, make them less wrong and dumb because all requirements are somewhat wrong and dumb and then delete, delete, delete. So as he's living in the factory, he slowly is walking around, seeing certain processes in place and he realizes it makes sense to actually de-automate certain steps. They had automated so many processes over the years without even thinking about it that they didn't realize some of the processes they'd automated would actually be faster if an actual human was doing that themselves. Like if you're picking up pieces with your fingers and you have to do these intricate physical acts, that is much easier for a human to do than some type of robot to do. So his first step was going around the factory de-automating. This was first at the battery gigafactory. That got up to speed and then he started focusing his attention on the Fremont car assembly plant. Now he was ready to speed things up at Fremont. By the beginning of April, it was producing only 2000 Model 3s per week. There seemed to be no way That the laws of physics would allow him to juice the plant's assembly lines into producing his magic number of 5,000 per week, which he was now promising Wall Street would happen by the end of June. So he goes to Fremont. He sees that they are physically only able to produce right now 2,000 Model 3s per week, and yet their stock Is shooting through the moon. Their stock is at this all time high price. And slowly, some skeptics, some short sellers are starting to notice maybe Musk can't actually reach his 5,000 car per week target. So now, in this period, many short sellers started shorting the stock. Musk was starting to get very heated. He hates short sellers. And he's thinking, how can I actually boost the production at the Fremont plant? Well, the way he would do that, again, is by continuing to lead his intense surge. He's going to make rapid-fire decisions, continue to question every requirement until they increase their production. Elon was going completely apeshit, marching from station to station. Musk calculated that on a good day, he made a 100 command decisions as he walked the floor. At least 20% are going to be wrong, and we're going to alter them later. But if I don't make decisions, we die. So he's walking around the factory, carrying out his intense surge. As we know, he's questioning any requirement that's in place, and he's finding Little improvements across the factory that could lead to a faster production timeline. He would see, like, maybe at one station, five bolts are needed. He would ask them, could we do it with two? Or he would see the speed of a robot's installation and he would say, can we increase the speed of this robot? If it's only at 30%, why don't we just set it at 100%? And like he said, maybe he's wrong here and there. Maybe the robot speed shouldn't be at a 100%, but other people, for them to solve where they should scale back. Elon Musk, in his surge-like state, his job was to go and really just push the limits of all his employees so that they could get closer to his production goal. As you could imagine, his approach was pretty effective. These changes actually got them Halfway there, they went from producing 2,000 cars per week to now, with his changes in place, they were producing 3,500 cars per week, but yet, Musk knows they are still well short of his goal. They're producing 3,500 cars per week in this Fremont facility, and despite all of his best intentions, this looks like simply the cap. On what they could produce in that factory. He's thinking, this can't really go any faster. There's no more space. There's no more assembly lines in the factory. What can I do to get us from our current number, 3,500, to my target of 5,000? Well, as Musk says, if conventional thinking makes your mission impossible, then unconventional thinking Is necessary. He thought of an incredibly creative solution to his problem by building an outdoor tent, a massive outdoor tent that would serve as an extra assembly line. So, this last step, they built an outdoor tent outside their Fremont facility. This is hundreds of feet. It's like you have a second warehouse outside. And that was really how they were able to hit their 5k per week production goal. They were using humans and using gravity instead of a conveyor belt because this was all outdoor. It was not built out like internally their factory. So they had to be very creative using different approaches to replicate the conveyor belt effect in this outdoor tent. But despite all that, it was successful. It provided That last gap, another 1,500 cars per week, so Tesla could hit their goal. They were able to mass-produce the Model 3. I became a broken record on the algorithm, Musk says, but I think it's helpful to say it to an annoying degree. Repetition is the mother of retention. It had five commandments. One, question every requirement. Musk tells his employees to literally know the name of the person who made these requirements and question it. Two, delete any part of the process you can. You may have to add them back later. In fact, if you do not end up adding back at least 10% of them, Then you didn't delete enough. Three, simplify and optimize. Four, accelerate cycle time. Then five, automate. But the most important thing for his algorithm is to first question everything and then delete the unnecessary steps before you try to speed up the process. Before you accelerate, Or you automate any of these manufacturing steps. You always want to start off with questioning and then deleting. We don't need to automate any steps that could be removed. So Musk would use his algorithm approach to accomplish these unbelievable feats in the hard sciences, hard tech realm that no one had really accomplished before creating A mass produced US car company in the last century and reusable rockets by a private space company. I wanted to highlight a few of his other core mantras that I really resonated with because I think maybe a couple of them will stand out for you as well. All technical managers must have hands on experience. For example, Managers of software teams must spend at least 20% of their time coding. Solar roof managers must spend time on the roofs doing installations. This is the best line. Otherwise, they are like a cavalry leader who can't ride a horse, or a general who can't use a sword. If these technical managers don't get their hands-on experience, then they won't be as effective with managing. This is how he would structure those engineering teams right next to the factory floors. The next one, a maniacal sense of urgency is our operating principle. Never ask your troops to do something you're not willing to do. And lastly, the only rules are the ones dictated By the laws of physics. Everything else is a recommendation. Oddly enough, after hitting his long awaited production goal of 5,000 cars per week, the rest of 2018 was a little bit unhinged for Elon Musk. That was the year he got on Joe Rogan's podcast in Smokes Weed. He got a bit of pushback from that. And this was the time when he tweeted the infamous 420 funding secured. This was actually after he had conversations with a Saudi investment fund. So it's not like this was just being pulled out of thin air, but nothing had actually been agreed. And he did end up getting in trouble with the SEC. He got charged with some fraud case. He had to kind of settle with the SEC, step down as chairman of Tesla and really step away from some of his controversial statements. I'm sure at times this political controversy and Elon Musk's loudness can really offend people. I know a lot of people either really love him or deeply, deeply hate him. But I just think it's interesting that despite the controversy, he is still always being productive. In this 2018 time period, he was pushing for the 5K production number. Also, at the same time, he was making a deal with China for them to be able to sell their cars and manufacture their cars in the nation. They were really one of the first companies being granted this right. Isaacson would say, the first Teslas began rolling out of the factory in October 2019. Within two years, China would be making more than half of Tesla's vehicles. So he was able to secure this great supplier relationship by opening up business in China during 2018, and he was being incredibly productive over at SpaceX as well. Now SpaceX was starting to turn their attention to an entirely new line of business. He turned his attention to what was a much bigger pot of gold, providing internet service to paying customers. SpaceX would make and launch its own communication satellites, in effect, rebuilding the internet in outer space. Internet revenue is about one trillion dollars a year he says if we could serve three percent that's 30 billion which is more than NASA's budget that was the inspiration for Starling to fund getting to Mars he pauses then adds for emphasis the lens of getting to Mars has motivated every SpaceX decision so now spacex has this new, potentially lucrative line of business where they could continue building rockets to Mars. The goal of Starlink was to build 40,000 low-orbit satellites so they could provide these internet services to customers. And as Musk says, that is a huge industry. This is a $1 trillion industry. He is only looking to serve 3% of that. And I even read a stat only a couple days ago that Starlink, over their last year, their revenue was $1.4 So it's already contributing a nice new flow of cash to SpaceX. And as we know with Musk, whenever he has more cash, whenever he's building up his companies, he's always looking to double down. So now, He has the stable business at SpaceX. He has his original business of sending payloads on his reusable Falcon 9 rockets. And he has the Starlink business, Internet Satellite Communications, providing a new line of business. Well, we know he is still not satisfied. His goal is to colonize Mars. In the way he's going to get there is with their new rocket Starship. The Starship system would have a first-stage booster and a second-stage spacecraft that together stack to be 390 feet high, 50% taller than the Falcon 9 and 30 feet taller than the Saturn V rocket that was used in NASA's Apollo program in the 1970s. Outfitted with 33 booster engines, it was capable of launching more than 100 tons of payload into orbit, four times more than the Falcon 9, and someday it would be able to carry 100 passengers to Mars. What's really shocking about Musk is that his first principle's thinking truly never stops this Starship rocket, it's a 50% taller rocket than their old Falcon 9. You would think that they would use many of the same design principles, but only in a larger sense. Well, in reality, Musk was applying his first principles thinking again, and he's starting to consider, how can I rework this rocket so it could be even more effective than the ones we've built already. The ones that we've built to successfully land. He's saying, I'm okay with rocking the boat a bit if it will lead to a more innovative approach. And the way that he was thinking about the landing procedure for Starship was not that the rocket would have standard landing legs, like these legs that extend out and you slowly, gently land the rocket, quite literally, but instead, he created. This pair of arms, it's basically like chopsticks to catch the rocket as it's coming down to land. He called this mind blowing device Mechazilla. And this is how SpaceX is trying to catch the landing of their Starship rockets. Musk would say SpaceX will try to catch the largest ever flying object with robot chopsticks. Success is not guaranteed, but excitement is. I highly recommend you look up this Starship chopstick arms because you will see this is mind blowing stuff. When you look it up, you will see how crazy of a concept it is. And just maybe we know with Elon Musk, just maybe this will actually work. Just maybe this is exactly the type of innovation that No one thought was the right solution, but his first principles thinking got him to. And this type of thinking is what constantly attracts the best talent to want to work with Elon Musk. Working with Musk is like getting pulled into this all consuming mission. You have to be obsessed. You literally have to give up almost everything else in your life. You're going to be working your ass off, but yet. People still walk away being so amped up. Working for Elon is one of the most exciting things you could do, but it doesn't allow time for a lot else in your life. Sometimes that's a great trade. If Raptor becomes the most affordable engine ever created and gets us to Mars, then it may be worth the collateral damage. Feedback like this was repeated across the book. A common refrain from past employees was saying, I'd rather be burned out than bored. They knew that they were giving up their social life, their family time, so many different things they could be spending their time on to work and grind for Elon Musk. But simply, they know that they are working on these great wild missions. They are working on this life-changing mission for humanity. Whether it's getting to Mars or revitalizing the EV market, these are two missions that are much grander than any of us as individuals. And this is something that I think all companies would benefit from. You find the most talented people, like we've spoken about Apple, Pixar doing, A players want to work with other A players. And then when they're all working off each other, the impossible is suddenly possible. Space travel is suddenly possible. Mass market EVs, suddenly possible. This level of innovation is due to his all-consuming missions. From 2007 onwards until maybe last year, it's been non-stop pain. There's a gun to your head. Make Tesla work. Pull a rabbit out of your hat. Then pull another rabbit out of the hat. A stream of rabbits flying through the air. If the next rabbit does not come out, you're dead. Musk has this deep-seated fear that change is the only constant in technology. We see he has developed his innovate or die mentality He has to keep pulling rabbits out of his hat to make his companies survive. And that really explains his core culture phrase, a maniacal sense of urgency is our operating principle. We always have to be on offense. This is a Nike saying, we always have to be on offense. We always have to be pushing, doubling down, going for the next innovation if we expect to survive. So these are the types of principles that propelled his companies, both Tesla and SpaceX to reach incredible heights post COVID. In 2021, that is when Tesla's both production numbers for their actual cars and their stock price skyrocketed. And that's where we saw Musk reach his personal fortunes. At one point, he was even worth $300 billion. It was at this time when everything was going well that he started to get a little bored. In April 2022, things were going surprisingly well for Musk. Tesla sales had grown 71% in the past 12 months without spending a penny on advertising. Its stock had gone up 15-fold In five years, and it was now worth more than the next nine auto companies combined. Musk's fierce browbeating of microchip suppliers meant that Tesla, unlike other manufacturers, had survived the supply chain dislocations caused by the pandemic, allowing it to achieve record deliveries in the first quarter of 2022. As for SpaceX, in the first quarter of 2022, it launched twice as much mass into orbit as all other companies and countries combined. In April, it sent up its fourth manned mission to the International Space Station, carrying 3 astronauts for NASA. So things are just rolling for Elon Musk in early 2022-2021 period. Things are going so well, and we know he has that slight addiction to drama and risk in his life, so with all that extra money, his addiction to drama, he decides to buy his favorite company. He decides to go hostile for Twitter. At the meeting, Musk found Agro to be likable. He's a really nice guy, but that was the problem. If you ask Musk what are the traits needed in a CEO, he would not include being a really nice guy. One of his maxims is that managers should not aim to be liked. What Twitter needs is a fire-breathing dragon, and Parag is not that. So Walter Isaacson goes into great detail in the book, on the Twitter acquisition, I'm just going to touch on a few of the lead-up events. And really, I want to spend a little bit more time on some of Musk's key decisions after completing the acquisition. I think, to me, those are the more interesting events than the lead-up. So just to give you a little bit of context, this lead-up to the Twitter acquisition, it started off with Musk being a heavy power user Of Twitter. Out of famous people, he definitely is one of the most active people on Twitter. And he realized that this is a product he felt like was undervalued. It could be this town square for free speech. So over a number of months, he started accumulating a stake in Twitter in the open markets. He had a lot of that extra money left over. So he's just investing it in the stock market, buying up shares of Twitter. Not a controlling stake, but a meaningful stake. This is a 5 to 10% stake. Eventually, some of the executives on the Twitter board saw that he had built up this big state. So they decided to offer him a board seat. They're thinking, okay, he's a power user. He's obviously had a lot of success in the tech world already it wouldn't hurt us to have his opinion on the board. And this is where things got a little testy because at the very last second, right before Musk was set to join the Twitter board, he decided to launch a hostile takeover instead. So he wanted to have his full control. This is something that we've repeated across the episode. And he saw that The hostile takeover of Twitter is the best way to do that. He offered $44 billion to buy out all of Twitter and for him to become the true sole owner. Now, over the coming months, he would come to regret that decision more and more. As the months evolved in this 2022, mid-2022 time period, The ad market started falling as interest rates started rising. And all these valuations across tech stocks were taking really a nosedive. Twitter's valuation had certainly been cut in many of their peers in the social media landscape, advertising landscape. So Musk was starting to kind of oscillate between whether he should even buy this company. Should he buy Twitter anymore? If its true value may be half of his $44 billion offer. So at this time, he was trying to find different excuses to either get out of the deal or reprice the deal. He knew that the price he had offered was too high based on the current market value. And the main excuse that he would hammer again and again was that Twitter has a bot problem. More than 5% of Twitter's users our bots. But after months of fighting, he just realized there's no way to get out of this deal. He was basically forced to close his original deal, this $44 billion purchase. And now he walks in as the owner of Twitter. And yes, he may have a little bit of that winner's curse. He overpaid for the deal. But he's decided, I mean, he has all the financial resources in the world He's decided if I'm going to get this asset, I might as well make the most of it. And now we will see some of his playbook post acquisition. The first thing that he did was that he cleaned house. He wanted to have a purge of any employees who do not fit his hardcore culture. So he collected a group of loyal people What Isaacson coined his musketeers, these three individuals, two of them are his cousins who would go over all the engineers and filter them based on who had written over 100 lines of code in the last month. They took on this very basic filter to really understand who in Twitter is ultra productive. Who is ultra hardcore? Who is committing themselves to the product at Twitter and not really getting away with kind of slacking off in the old looser culture? So this was really the first decision that Musk made in his first week taking over, and we saw that practically 25% of the Twitter staff was eliminated overnight. This was his first purge. Now, the second big decision that he made to change Twitter was that he wanted to add subscriptions, the blue checkmark subscriptions, instead of for verification. Now, it is just a paid product. Anyone who subscribes to Twitter Blue could pay for this quote-unquote old verification. And a big reason that he wanted to offer this, it ties back To that original idea around his x.com mission. In the early 2000s, we know that he wanted to create that financial super app, and this is certainly the same goal that he has with Twitter now. Getting a user's credit card, he said, would have an additional advantage. It could facilitate turning Twitter into a payments platform where people could send money, hand out tips, and pay for stories, music, and videos. Because Howery and Nosek had been with Musk at PayPal, they liked the idea. It could fulfill my original vision for x.com and PayPal, Musk said with a gleeful laugh. From the very beginning, he saw the potential that Twitter could become what he had envisioned for X.com, a social network that supported financial transactions. So here Musk's idea, the X.com original vision, is coming full circle. Since his PayPal days, he has wanted to create this financial super app, and now he feels like the combination of Twitter, a social network, a peer-to-peer, social network plus adding financial capabilities can turn it into this true super app juggernaut. And I think part of the inspiration behind this is also that ever since that PayPal time period in the early 2000s, we've seen two companies out in the east in China fulfill this mission, this financial super app mission. We've seen both WeChat, and Alibaba's Alipay do a similar thing in China. But I think the big struggle with Musk trying to accomplish this in the U.S. under Twitter and that happening in China is that the U.S. has a much more built-out ecosystem. The U.S. has many fintech and payment companies already. It had a mature fintech and internet landscape way before the mobile revolution, whereas China, a lot of their internet revolution was developing at the same time as the mobile revolution. So we saw a few super apps go on to win in China, like the WeChats and Alibabas and Meitwans of the world, whereas in the US, we haven't seen this level of super app success. So I think this has been Certainly the vision of Musk's Twitter, he is hoping that he could turn it into his original X.com mission, a financial super app linked with a social network. We have yet to see if that will be possible in the U.S. The other big goal that Musk had going into Twitter was that it could become this true town square for free speech he wanted people to feel free to speak their minds and he thought that this new twitter under his ownership private ownership could enable free speech the problem that he's faced i think the issue it hasn't turned out as well as he would have hoped is that real free speech in some ways goes against his advertising based business he has seen some true pushback from the advertisers in this realm. Isaacson would describe, Musk had begun to realize that creating a good venue for advertisers conflicted with his plans to open the aperture to more free speech. A few days earlier, he wrote a Dear Twitter Advertisers letter promising, Twitter obviously cannot become a free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences what advertisers disliked about twitter though was that it could be a cesspool of falsehoods and weaponized disinformation that people including musk spread in impulsive and reckless ways advertising accounted for 90% 90% of twitter's revenue it was already declining due to an ad recession, but after Musk took over, it began to fall much faster. It would tumble by more than half in the next six months. So this has been the other huge challenge during his Twitter ownership. He's dealing with a very different business model than what he's used to before. In Tesla, you're selling goods to consumers. In SpaceX, you're selling these large government contracts, sending payloads to space. So these are more outcome-based and product-delivery-based business models, whereas the advertising business model, it relies a little bit more on content moderation and not rocking the boat. With true free speech People are saying whatever they want on your platform, and you're maybe not regulating their worst intentions. You know, content moderation is really hard. Even Musk himself, he has this natural tendency, it's in his nature, not to censor himself. So when the free speech gets out of hand, this can become somewhat of a tough problem for advertisers. They would feel uncomfortable promoting their products next to all these detrimental sentiments, all these detrimental statements. And then we saw that the advertisers just thought maybe it's easier to pull out entirely. Maybe we should just leave Twitter as an advertising platform. And Twitter lost half of their advertising revenues in the span of six months. Over the course of Musk's ownership, he certainly had his fair share of challenges. Isaacson goes through how he's had to let go of roughly 75% of the original employees because he felt like they didn't fit his hardcore culture. He has seen, as we just discussed, his advertising revenue be cut in half, and he's had an embarrassing product rollout with his Twitter Blue subscription program. This was where he introduced the subscription verification marks to the masses, not to celebrities or brands anymore. And within just 24 hours, he saw many pranksters basically copying wide, well-known brands like Super Mario Bros. This was a very popular one. It Went viral for the wrong reasons. They copied Super Mario's logo and was flipping off fans. So, this is definitely not the type of environment that advertisers want to be in. If their brand is subject to this type of overnight devaluing, then they may just decide to get off Twitter altogether. But I think despite all of these negative events, happening in the first year of his ownership, we have seen again and again, maybe not to bet against Musk. He has had his back against the wall with numerous of his companies before, Tesla and SpaceX in multiple periods, 2008, 2018, PayPal, when they were competing with Confinity. So many of his companies have struggled in the past, but yet, His hardcore approach has still somehow pulled through. I think the important thing here will be, can it pull through before the debt cripples him? You now may be asking, and certainly Walter Isaacson was asking himself, why did Musk want to make this acquisition? What, under the surface, was truly drawing Musk to Twitter? this is his theory. I believe there was a psychological, personal yearning. Twitter was the ultimate playground. As a kid, he was beaten and bullied on the playground, never having been endowed with the emotional dexterity needed to thrive on that rugged terrain. It instilled a deep pain and sometimes caused him to react to slights, far too emotionally. But it also is what girded him to be able to face the world and fight every battle. When he felt dinged up, cornered, bullied, either online or in person, it took him back to a place that was super painful, where he was dissed by his father and bullied by his classmates. But now he could own the playground. I think the real shame in all this Twitter drama, the Twitter saga is really that he's not spending all of this time actually working on his true groundbreaking innovations. The companies like Tesla, revitalizing the electric car market, SpaceX, getting us to Mars, even his side projects like Neuralink, brain, human interface connections, These are things that just on the side he thinks up or founding OpenAI seven, eight years ago. These are just his side projects, let alone his grand world changing missions under Tesla and SpaceX. So to me, I don't really care that much that he bought Twitter. That's why I haven't spent nearly as much time during this podcast talking about that compared to the two big companies. But I just really wish. All this time he's spending on the political fighting, the drama at Twitter, turning around our town square social media site, I just wish it went back to being spent on the big missions. This is something that his own brother, Kim Ball, would express as well. I really don't give a shit about Twitter. It's just a pimple on the ass of what should be Your impact on the world. So, regardless of what happens over at Twitter, his companies, Tesla and SpaceX, are well on their way to changing the world. The future of Tesla certainly looks very bright now with their successful mass produced Model 3. And now they are looking at their next 10 year roadmap with much more ambitious goals. They want to create an even more affordable car and really get in to the automated driving space. In order for Tesla to grow at 50% a year, it needed to have an inexpensive small car. The global market for such a car was huge. By 2030, there might be up to 700 million of them, almost twice as many as for the Model 3 Y category. Then they showed that the same vehicle platform and the same assembly lines could be used to make both the $25,000 car and the robo taxi. So Musk envisions this future of Tesla creating more and more affordable cars, doubling down, keep reinvesting his profits on better and better, more affordable cars. And then soon. On automated cars, like his long-term vision, the robo taxi. We know Elon Musk will never just stop and be complacent. He has that deep-seated fear of success disease. So for him, it is simply impossible to just stand in place, to stop innovating. He is always going to be seeking out that next risk and trying to reach that next innovative step even if it results in a failure along the way. And we've seen this play out most recently at SpaceX as well. As they were making the first launch of their new Starship rocket, the much bigger, more expensive rocket, on the very first launch, they actually had to self-destruct. And again, Musk would preach to his team that this is actually a success. Like the decision to forego slosh baffles on the early version of the Falcon 1, taking these risks turned out to be a mistake. It is unlikely that NASA or Boeing, with their stay-safe approach, would have made those decisions. But Musk believed in a fail-fast approach to building rockets. Take risk. Learn by blowing things up. Revise. Repeat. We don't want to design to eliminate every risk, he said. Otherwise, we will never get anywhere. The last question that I want to touch on is should we envy Elon Musk? This was inspired by a panel that he was on where they asked a really insightful question. Isaacson would share, the moderator asked what advice he would give to someone who wanted to be the next Elon Musk. He replied, I'd be careful what you wish for. I'm not sure how many people would actually like to be me. The amount that I torture myself is next level. I thought this question is really interesting. Should we envy Elon Musk? Because we can't simply envy him for the money alone. Obviously, he's become incredibly wealthy, so people look at his wealth and they feel that jealousy, that envy for his wealth, but we have to understand what were all the other natural preconditions to becoming Elon Musk? I have purposely not really touched on much of his personal life. The book goes deep into this, but just to give you a quick highlight here, his personal life involves, as I mentioned in the beginning, a very rough childhood, being emotionally scarred by his father, that leading to multiple different relationships with women, never really being able to sustain one steady relationship with one woman, having one family with a woman. He had a first wife, had a lot of drama and arguments with his first wife, led to a divorce, Met. His second wife proposed to her after just two weeks of knowing each other. That ended in divorce, toxic relationships, having secret kids with his employees. So there was this wild series of stories in his personal life. And I think that all stems back to him not having a true father figure. His father was this emotionally and verbally abusive figure in Elon Musk's life, and that ended up having a big impact on the rest of his social life. And the interesting thing here, as we ask ourselves, should we envy Elon Musk, is was having his horrible father a necessary precondition for who he became? We know that he always would question authorities. Well, was the lack of his true father figure A big reason why he always questions higher authorities. Would he accomplish these impossible tasks of space travel, revitalizing electric vehicles without his mood swings, without his rage, without those intense surge sprees? Some of these things very much resemble the mood swings in Jekyll and Hyde nature that his father would imprint on him where would Musk be without his addiction to risk, his lack of fear? I think all these questions, they point to the same thing. Should we envy Elon Musk? We know his upbringing was incredibly traumatic for him, bullied on the playground, bullied by his own father, being told repeatedly, you're worthless, you're pathetic, you are not going to be successful. And yet, he turned into This grand innovator of the last century. Should we envy Elon Musk? Could you get the rockets to orbit or transition to electric vehicles without accepting all aspects of him, hinged and unhinged? Sometimes great innovators are risk seeking man children. They could be reckless, cringeworthy, and sometimes even toxic. They can also be crazy. Crazy enough to think they can change the world. So that wraps up Walter Isaacson's incredible new biography, Elon Musk. It dives into the mind of, I would say, one of the greatest entrepreneurs of our last century and shows many of the tools and playbooks he used to create multiple great internet and hard tech businesses. Tesla, SpaceX, PayPal, Zip2, some of the smaller ones now, Neuralink taking over Twitter. They all are having a big impact on our world today. So I highly recommend you go out and check out the book yourself. It's a very entertaining and insightful read and I hope you learned a lot from this episode as well. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend. That would be amazing, and thanks again for listening.